Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. So last episode, we had someone on who has gotten referenced multiple times on the podcast, Jane Martin, professor of film at the University of St. Francis. Here's another reference. I want to wind the clock back to the spring of 2016. I'm in Jane's advanced AV class, along with Autumn Schultz, who you heard on our third episode talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Lucas Gerke, who you heard in our episode from this past May, where we talked about the Snyder Cut. In that advanced AV class, our primary focus was creating a short film, and within the first few weeks of that, I think we knew we were going to cast you in one of the lead roles. Well, the character was named Caleb, so I think you had me in mind pretty much from the get-go. And it was so cool to go through the whole process from the audio side of things. Before I got into radio and podcasting, I was an audio for visual media nerd. Areas like film scoring and Foley get, I think, a lot of focus from the general public if you're thinking about that type of post-production audio work. And this might sound very basic, but the audio that you hear of dialogue in a film is almost always not recorded on set. You can do a great job capturing in production with a shotgun mic, boom mount, and the dead wombat windscreen, but that audio is almost always meant to serve as a reference when you do what's called ADR, or automated dialogue replacement. So, after our scenes were shot for the short film, I'd meet up with you, and you'd have a cut of the film on screen for me and my fellow actors, and we would go through watching ourselves on screen and re-record our dialogue, matching our lips to what was on screen. It's an amazing process, and this was one of my first windows into the whole world of voiceover and voice acting from the production side of things. ADR is pretty straightforward. As the actor, you are trying to match the performance that you gave previously. We could compare that to a dub, where you're recording that voice to match a visual, but it's not necessarily your performance to begin with. You have that maybe with anime or anything that has been redubbed for an audience speaking a different language. And sometimes it's the other way around. The voiceover performances from actors and actresses are used to build an entire performance. The example that springs to my mind is James Woods. When he auditioned for the Disney movie Hercules, they had the character written to be a much more you know, traditional villain type. And then James Woods comes in and does this greasy kind of car salesman performance. And they liked it so much, not only did they cast him in the movie, but they completely rewrote the character to fit that kind of role. And we have, because again, this is a pop culture podcast, we focus on so many different areas. And whether we're talking about animation or video games or so many areas that are things that we have consumed a lot of hours of, there are a lot of amazing voice acting performances kind of serving as the bedrock. Uh, again, I'm a huge fan of Batman the Animated Series, so I think of the way that they would perform with their entire voice acting cast together in one space, acting and reacting off of each other, and then that becomes what the animators then build on. They animate to the voice acting performances. Or you have, even in the case of something completely different, maybe like the voicing for a video game, which is also something I got to do in college, where you record a bunch of different variations of similar things that are going to match up with the timed events or the different triggers within the game. And so those are going to be long sessions, probably just you going through and doing the part and getting all of those elements in there for what is going to be an experience for the consumer or for the viewer or for the listener much longer than a movie, obviously. So all of these things, whether we're talking about animation or video games or so many of the things that we talk about on this podcast, they go back in a lot of ways to voice acting. It's an easy tie-in to make. But often when it comes to these amazing voice actors, whether there's an emphasis on the versatility of their performance and we have somebody who can do a lot of different interesting and funny cartoon voices or it's someone like Andrea Romano was the casting director for Batman the Animated Series, someone who has more of a voice with character, as she would put it, where you have the Mark Hamills and the Kevin Conroy's of the world who are so associated with that role and do that specific part very well. You have a lot of different elements there and the rest of us just kind of sit back in awe and say something like, how do you make that sound?
this episode is going to work a little differently. There's a couple folks joining us. John Dawkins, who has been hosting the podcast recordings for nearly our entire second season. John, thank you for having us, and it's good to finally have you on a mic. <laughs> Thanks. And our guest joining us via Zoom is someone I met a number of years ago at Indiana Comic Con in Indianapolis. I say a number of years ago, but it was actually 2019 because time is a construct and here we are. There was going to be a session on voice acting at this particular Comic Con, which uh, piqued my interest. So I made sure to uh, seat myself in the audience for it. The speaker that day was, at the time, a PhD candidate at IU, but now I can welcome to Storytelling Breakdown, Dr. Colette Fian. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. It's my first public appearance as a as a doctor. Very exciting. <laughs> it is wonderful to have you. We're super excited, as we said right before we turned on the mics, because you're the first official doctor we have on the show. So I thought that was fun. Very exciting. Our first question and topic is one that all of us have our own answers to. What brings you into the world of voice acting? Whose performances have been the most inspiring and who comes to mind? Colette, let's start with you. Um, I mean, certainly one of them has got to be Veronica Taylor, original Ash Ketchum in the English dub. I loved the show when I was little. Um, I actually ended up being able to collect data from Veronica Taylor for my research. And she's just the nicest person I've ever met. We just had so much fun recording the data and everything. She ended up coming to my PhD defense. She like came and sat through the whole thing. <laughs> and it was just the sweetest thing. I was like, I, just on a whim, I like emailed her to be like, hey, remember that thing we did? I'm finishing it, so thank you. And she was like, well, is it on Zoom? Can I watch? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Nervousness just ratchets up 100%. Oh my word. Yeah. That is amazing. It's one of those things where you send the invitation and it's like kind of on a lark and then you don't expect your hero to actually be there. And they are. I mean, that that's just amazing. Like even up until the moment, like I did not expect, I was like, she's busy. Like something's going to come up. She's going to have to like record something in the middle of a Thursday afternoon. Like there's no way she's going to come. And then like she sent me this spectacular email the night before and she was like, you're going to kill it. Like, I'm so excited to be there. Like, good luck. Like, you know your stuff. Like I was like, oh my God. I was like crying. Oh, that's so sweet. Absolutely precious. I love that. And we absolutely will go back and when we dive a little bit more into your research and, and the data collection, that would be a wonderful kind of point of view to take and just how the process worked, uh, getting someone like Veronica involved and going from there. But we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. I think just so we all know where we're coming from with this, because we all have a great appreciation for voice acting and all the different forms and mediums in which it appears. I think this is a question that all of us uh, can certainly answer. Caleb, do you want to go next? Yeah. Mine, it feels, it's like yours, not in the exact same way, because yours are very much like, you know, the quintessential you think of when it comes to voice acting. But for me, it's got to be Mako from Avatar The Last Airbender. He was Uncle Iroh. He was the voice of Aku from uh, Samurai Jack. He has like the perfect, most soothing voice. I love it. Absolutely. I cannot watch Tales of Bossing Say without just ugly crying. Yep. Yep. Every time. That is how that experience goes. John, you want to go next? I've just always really liked voices. I think one of the first things I ever started imitating was Monty Python. Somebody gave me a cassette tape of Monty Python's final ripoff album, which was just a compilation of audio of their sketches. Hello, I would like to buy a fish license, please. Or what? A license for my pet fish, Eric. How'd you know my name was Eric? <laughs> and uh, the parrot sketch and all that stuff. And then cartoons for me, particularly when we got into like the 90s cartoons with Animaniacs and stuff like that, that's when I started recognizing voice actors. Rob Paulson has got to be my biggest hero. I was so sad last year when he stopped doing his Talking Tunes podcast, probably because he's been focusing on doing the new Animaniacs. Hey, God, Brian, brilliant! Oh, no, wait. If Mars were meant to fly, we'd have been born with little bags of nuts. Pinky, you are a little bag of nuts. <laughs> Nerf. <laughs> yeah. As I've thought more and more about this, I have keep kind of trying to categorize and kind of look at, okay, we have the we have the voice of character group, and you have then those who are maybe a little bit more well-known for their versatility, and they have hundreds of voice acting credits. It's just crazy. Kind of the difference between someone like your Tara Strong or your Troy Baker 
and then maybe someone who is the right voice for the right part and we're talking about Kevin Conroy and Batman or maybe even just someone who's hasn't spent anywhere near as much time with the part but just absolutely nailed it if we're talking maybe like Chris Pine and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse so the voice with character right for the part right for the right scenario versus someone who has just a ton of versatility when my wife and I were watching Loki and were first introduced to Miss Minutes and I'm picking up all of the Dolly Parton vibes in that character's voice. And I'm just thinking that sounds so close, but I realized even in something like voice acting with what they say about any role you play in any acting context, there's a little bit of you in every character you play. And even without looking or seeing the credits, I was like, I bet that's Tara strong listening to miss minutes. And sure enough, there we are when it comes to, probably my biggest influences. I've already said one of them because uh, I grew up with Batman in the animated series. And really that was what first got me into voice acting when I realized the hero of my childhood, Luke Skywalker, is also the voice of the Joker and is maybe arguably better known for that now. And just Mark Hamill's performance is insane. And kind of, I did not have anywhere near the length of encounter uh, or would not be on his radar, but I did get to meet Kevin Conroy that might have been at the same Comic-Con. I'm trying to remember when he was down there for that. But that might have also been 2019. Uh, and it, it was just been. a joy uh, getting to have him step up onto the chair so that he can see over the entire crowd and the crowd can see him and doing the I am Vengeance, I am the Knight, I am Batman. And from there, I mean, for our Storytelling Breakdown blog, I did a, a ranked list of the top 10 villain voice acting performances from that show. I have a Riddler bias, so I put John Glover at number two. Of course, Mark Hamill's number one. I think I had Michael and Sarah's Mr. Freeze at number three. Uh, just so many amazing performances and voices. But really, this is something that I can tell, given my interest in audio, as well as my interest in production and just all sorts of different aspects, has very much influenced my life to this point. I'm glad it has, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I don't want to hijack the conversation, but like iconic voices that aren't necessarily related to like shows and stuff. This is kind of a deep Midwestern Lutheran cut. But did any of you listen to Prairie Home Companion on NPR? <laughs> Years yes. of growing up and Garrison Keillor, who was such a wonderful voice and just the different characters he did telling the stories of the everyday life of Lake Wobegon. <laughs> that from a young age instilled a love of just voice acting work because since it's on the radio you know there's not even any visuals like a cartoon or anything it's totally just the performance with the voice yeah and you can also pair that right with foley and sound effects because it blew that i remember being very young and we just had my brother on the podcast and like a lot of things he was perhaps maybe trying to get me into something that I was too young for. But I remember hearing some Prairie Home Companion bits and he was like, no, listen to like the, the ones that have the sound effects, man. Cause it's just like, Oh, these are amazing. I think there was one that was about the, forgive me bringing this up while we're in the conversation with an IU grad, but I think it was about the Purdue engineering department and just all these ridiculous inventions. And it's like the exploding boomerang. <laughs> <laughs> The self-destructing kitty letter. You get the idea. It, just so many wonderful ways. And then I, I think about that too with like even just like critical role episodes. It's like, how did Taliesin just do the perfect sound of a gun loading and cocking with his voice? But it's it's part of the skill set and the professionals are the pros for a reason. And what daylight there is there and differences in the process is something that we're going to dive into today because that relates quite extensively uh, to Colette's research. So with that, let's rock and roll. Colette, since you've done actual research, in the in-session interview with Ben, I know you talked about there's no difference between gender, like that doesn't have a bearing on it. But my sister and I always talked about, it seems like every boy like innately knows how to make gun sound effects, and my sister never knew how to pull it off. <laughs> Is there anything to that or? I think one, it's just little boys like to play pretend guns. So they start figuring it out way earlier than a girl would ever want to. But also I think there's sociological aspects to that of boys are very encouraged to like put themselves out there and be silly and whatever. And girls are a lot of times told to like act proper and be a lady and like whatever. Mm. At least when we were younger, maybe. Maybe not so much now, but. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I think it's more just, I think girls tend to at least 
when they're still young, tend to be a little bit less willing to make a fool out of themselves. Uh, and to to learn how to do sounds, you have to have a pretty high tolerance for That's sounding true. like a doofus. <laughs> yeah, that applies. Like you're gonna you're gonna make sounds that don't work, and you you gotta figure out what what doesn't work just as much as you need to figure out what does work. I was like, on uh, you ever watch Whose Line Is It Anyway? All the time. They pull people out Absolutely. of the audience to do sound effects for whatever scene they're doing, and it, it can be atrocious at times. Most of the time, guns on there tend to wind up being pew-pew <laughs> or something like that. Yep, yep. If I go down a Who's Line rabbit hole, we will be on a 15-minute <laughs> tangent. Between the Greg Proops connection to the Phantom Menace, which we can tie into the fourth episode that we did on this podcast, and, of course, Aisha Tyler and Archer and that whole connection to the voice acting realm, there's definitely some connective tissue between... Uh, brilliant voice acting and he's like well actually who am i kidding robin williams is even on there and then you blow the door wide open i mean it makes sense with i mean with improv you have to think quick you have to be able to you know create this whole situation scenario in your mind and that's a lot of what voice acting feels like at least you're bringing to life an entire situation that's not happening and as previously established be willing to sound like a doofus and have a very high tolerance for sounding like a doofus, yes. <laughs> and most of the time, they don't have, like, the footage isn't done when they're recording the voices. They record that before the animation is complete. So they don't even have, like, a visual for what they're supposed to be looking at or what their character's doing. Mm-hmm. You're right. It is totally in the theater of the mind. So before we can talk about some of the questions you had going into your research and the answers we kind of need to talk about how you got them because there's some technology involved that I've had a couple chances to hear about and learn about. And I look forward to hearing again. And again, John and Caleb are hearing this for the first time. Can you tell us about the technology you got to use for your research at IU? Because there's so many layers to it. I don't really want to give any additional prompting because inevitably I'm going to put us in the wrong spot. So please guide us (laughs) along this journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I just ended up happening to be in the right place at the right time because my first semester of grad school, fall of 2015, um, I remember sitting in my like advanced phonetics class and this professor I hadn't seen before like came in before the class started to talk to the professor of that class and was like, it's it works, we've done it. Like, was very excited. I didn't at that moment know what they were talking about, but I realized that it was basically putting together... Um, this way to image and analyze speech using 3D, 4D ultrasound. And so what that means is, just like what you use to look at a baby, right? It's ultrasound. But instead of, you know, pointing it at your stomach, we point it underneath your chin and point it up uh, towards the top of your head and the signal can travel through your tissues and it'll show you what your tongue is doing. So basically the way ultrasound works is it's really, really high frequency noise. It's a high frequency signal. So because it's so high frequency, it's got really, really tiny sound waves. Um, So they can go through the tissues. And when basically it, it, you know, goes through the skin under your chin, it goes through, you know, all your tongue muscles, whatever. When it hits the air on the surface of your tongue, it reflects back and shows up as a bright line. Basically, the ultrasound probe times how long it takes for the signal to come back. And then it translates that to an image on the screen. So we have a very, very fancy ultrasound probe, which is like, I think it's like $20,000 or something. Like just this tiny little piece is very fragile, very expensive, terrifying to touch. So the the way the signal, the high frequency sound is created, there are these tiny crystals in there called piezoelectric crystals, and they vibrate really, really fast. So 2D ultrasound in two dimensions, you'll just have one strip of those crystals so that you can just see like one slice into the mouth or into, you know, whatever you're looking at. But this one has an entire array of crystals, like a whole block of them. And so it basically collects a bunch of slices all at once. So we can collect the horizontal surface. We can collect the surface basically like if you're slicing your head like bread down the from the front to the back. And then also if you're slicing your head 
from the side like bread. So you can collect all of those dimensions all at once. And then the fourth D, the fourth dimension, is actually time. So we can take that 3D image or the 3D video once we compile it and we can attach it to, or we can um, superimpose the sound that was being spoken at that time. And we can watch and hear what the tongue was doing during that time. And there's a whole element of, because I remember when you did the talk at Comic-Con, we first just had to understand some basic anatomy of everything that is going on within this apparatus to understand what is even being imaged and why different aspects are significant. Yes, definitely. If I'm recalling this correctly, the other aspect would just be, again, the questions that are trying to be answered and the fact that, I mean, we can take out the business element for a moment. It's like, oh, I want to get into voice acting. It's like, well, hire an agent and then the, like yeah. this, that, and the other thing to get into it. But then also it's like, oh, how do you do such and such? And it's really hard to explain, apparently, even if you're a professional at it. If, again, thinking yeah. back to the first time you and I, I met at, at Comic-Con 2019. Like, you guys have always loved, like, cartoons, always loved voiceover. Uh, again, like, other people who are absolute heroes to me. And I've, I've had the absolute pleasure and honor and great fortune to meet most of these people. But Rob Paulson is another one. And, I mean, Maurice LaMarche. I mean, there are just so many. Carlos Alizraki. And so when I was young, I did have a high tolerance for feeling like a doofus. So I would just, like, make sounds all the time. I'd be watching TV and I'd just be, like, repeating the sounds back. Uh, at some point in, like, middle school, I was, like, a theater kid. I was in all the, like, plays and stuff. And so I would go around, like, backstage with all the lights out. And I would come up to people and I would just come up real close behind them and I was a ballerina too so I was very quiet <laughs> they wouldn't know I was there and I'd just go don't you want to play with me and every time they would be like absolutely not get away why do you do this you're horrifying like just the entire array of negative uh, emotions <laughs> after a while it, it sort of struck me I was like wait like we're all the theater kids like why can't why can't we all do this? Why am I the only one who can do this? And so, like, that was always a question that was, like, rattling around in, in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I got to high school. I learned the term linguistics. Still had no idea what it actually was. But um, but I knew I was going to study it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, when I got to college, I tried to declare my major before I took a linguistics class. Um, and they were like, you're not allowed to do that. And I was like, <laughs> but I'm gonna major in it, so... And they were like, you, you, okay, but come back after you've completed one class in linguistics, please. <laughs> um, so I got to, I got to college and I was like, well, surely, like, none of the theater kids knew why, why I'm the only one who could do this. Surely the linguists would know. And I would like casually try and like bring that up in conversation with linguists and they'd be like, I have no idea. Why are you asking me? I'd be like, well, what the, like, you, it's language. We should be able to figure out how it works. And then I started going to Comic-Cons and I would just, uh, just basically cold call, like walk up to the tables and be like, how'd you do that? How would you describe what you do? And I saw this pattern, which was either the actors just say, I don't know. I just, I just do it like me. Or they'd say absolutely spectacularly, like, splendiferous, out-of-left-field things. Like, oh, when I put my voice up here, and they'd, like, point to the, like, middle of their forehead. And you're like, that's, that's not how that works. Or they'd be like, well, I'd squish down here and, like, indicate somewhere in their neck. My favorite response, though, that I ever got was from Alan Oppenheimer, uh, Skeletor. I, like, went up to him, and I was like how would you say, like, how would you describe what you do to sound like a small character? And at first he did not understand my question because he was like, well, they're not small. And I was like, what? And he was like, on the screen they're small, but they're, none of them are small. And I was like, no, I mean... <laughs> I was like, no, like, a character who is comparatively supposed to be smaller than the other characters on the screen, how do you make them sound small? Like, what would you... How would you describe that? And he was like, will I just... I just think it up here, and he points to his head, and then he says, and it comes out here, and he points to his mouth, <laughs> and I was like, this is truly the best answer I could have hoped for, I'm so thankful, like, 
This is, like, the best example of how, like, people are doing a really complex task and nobody has any idea how to describe it. Oh, my word. Also, just for reference, uh, Alan Oppenheimer is 91. I just looked it up. Oh, yeah. my word. Yeah, so he was probably, like, 88, 89 when I talked to him. Well, people ask me why I do stupid voices, and I just always, I just always tell them, I just always wanted to be a cartoon. <laughs> but well and you also have and oh now see i i grew up watching rocky and bullwinkle with my dad and now i yeah. feel bad that i'm blanking she voice Foray. actress say thank June you <laughs> yep yeah and it's it's just amazing when you have someone like oppenheimer who and again i see this thinking of public radio just with how long people stay on the mic it's a career path that you can figure out what you're good at and stick with for decades if you yeah. can do something very specific very well rob paulson says that uh, you know it's it's the one acting thing that you can't age out of mm-hmm. yeah and that's the thing so so yeah once i started getting you know all of these weird responses from all the voice actors i was like all right well maybe this is like maybe this is an interesting question like Maybe I'll find the answer. So then I started grad school, and then that day the the professor came in and he was like, "Back to the Future, Doc. Like we've done it. Like," <laughs> and I was like, "I want, I, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> USOB. I'm in." <laughs> it took a lot of convincing. Not all of the linguists were convinced that this was uh, these were interesting questions that would lead us to interesting answers. But eventually, I obviously wrote an entire dissertation about it and became a doctor because of it, which is pretty cool. When I was trying to, like, figure out what my research questions were going to be, it was fall 2015, I went to Salt Lake Comic Con, and I saw Rob Paulson there. And I went up and talked to him, and I was like, I have a weird question, like, I'm a linguist. When you do Carl Weezer... You do this thing in linguistics, at least, that you, that we would call a dark L. And I was wondering, was that like a conscious decision on your part? Or was that just something that happened when you saw the character or something? And he like stopped me and he was like, I am so glad that you're asking about this because that was a conscious decision on my part. I just thought that it makes him really endearing. He's like, there is this news anchor who sounded like that when I was growing up and I thought it was very endearing so I gave, I wanted to give it to Carl. Can I ask you what is a dark L? Like 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 a llama like that kind of L. So basically it's when you use the back of your tongue for the constriction for an L as opposed to the front of your tongue. So everybody in in US English for the most part will use both in different contexts. So if you say like ball 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 the L sound is made with the back of your tongue, but if you say, like, light, light, the L sound is made with the front of your tongue, at the front of your mouth. So deliberately throwing all of those to the back. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that's amazing. So instead of llama, it's llama. That's what the dark L was. And uh, he was just super excited that I asked about it, and I was like, like, I want to, like, make this into my PhD dissertation, like, you know, bright-eyed, brand-new grad student, still full of hope. <laughs> <laughs> um and he was just so encouraging and he was like i want to read that like that's amazing like i've never heard anyone doing of, of anyone doing this like you absolutely have to do it i was like okay this is amazing like if voice actors want to read it at least i can prove that like someone is interested in this information i want to read this yeah <laughs> thank you yeah i mean we still i mean we had an episode on blues brothers uh earlier in this season so you, you're now on a mission from god or rob paulson <laughs> Perfect. And then, so spring semester of the following year, I was in a sociolinguistics class. So I basically wanted to use the the project for that semester, the semester project for that class, um, as proof of concept that you could find interesting things uh, from voice actors. So I actually took a bunch of audio. I stripped a bunch of audio off of, like, Rob Paulson's vlogs. Um, of him speaking as different characters and I analyzed it and I showed that there was like weird stuff going on with the vowels and like used that as proof for my advisor to be like look like this is doable I could do even more if I actually had the voice actors here and I didn't have to like strip audio away from like bad quality like 
just like little vlogs that he like posted from his phone like to advertise things. And so that spring, Indiana Comic Con was supposed to have all four Ninja Turtles, which includes Rob Paulson for anyone who doesn't know that. So I printed out this project. I printed out this paper and I brought a copy and I was going to give it to him. But anyone who knows Rob Paulson knows that that was actually right when he had gotten diagnosed with throat cancer. Um, so he canceled his appearance and it hadn't been announced yet. And I don't really know how many people knew at that point, but I remember asking Maurice LaMarche or like not even asking, just being like, yeah, I was, I was excited to show this to Rob. Like I was really hoping he was going to be here. And like, just the way like Maurice LaMarche like responded to that like comment, I was like, I, it sounds like something bad happened. I'm not going to push this. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Um, and then a few months later, they announced that he had he had throat cancer, um, which he has luckily uh, survived. He's in remission, which is very exciting. Uh, we became friends on TikTok, which is I cried again. Um, <laughs> uh, so one day, maybe I'll maybe I'll give him a copy of it of the dissertation. I've been wanting to write him a fan letter. He's the only person I've ever wanted to write a fan letter to. Do it for sure. Do it. So at that point you're on to data collection and you are able to tell us about, I mean, you mentioned Veronica Taylor already. Tell us. So part of my brain is just going, I want to know all of these stories and as much, <laughs> and as much as you can condense them uh, for our format, tell us about some of the most interesting twists and turns in that journey of working with uh, voice actors of obviously varying degrees of expertise. You're going to have a massive pool of really talented people with a really wide range. I guess, tell us about the methods to the madness of getting on their radar, getting them involved, and some of the different elements. I mean, learning about the the dark L aspect of Pulsum was fascinating. So as many of those as you want to include, please do. So I guess let's start with like the research questions. I ended up settling on, let's look at kid voices because that's something I can do. I can pilot everything on myself and then figure out who, who else is going to also do the things that I did. I collected a bunch of data for myself first. Doing my little kid voice. And so I uh, basically in the ultrasound system, I collected webcam images or like video of the side of the face. For a couple of the subjects, I collected EGG, which is basically just like electrodes that you place around the larynx and it tells you if you're raising or lowering your larynx. Um, if you're not sure what your larynx is, uh, you can loosely think of it as what people call the voice box. Um, it's where your vocal folds are. And so, uh, and then I also collected audio data, obviously. So I was able to analyze the ultrasound images as well as the audio and do a, a bunch of fancy like analyses on that kind of stuff. So what I was looking at was, first of all, how are the voices different when you're talking in your ad regular adult voice versus when you're talking in a simulated child voice? It's going to sound different, but like quantitatively and qualitatively, what are those differences? Of those differences, if we compare the differences in the sound to the differences in articulation, is that what we would have expected to happen? If you move your tongue forward while you're saying a specific kind of vowel sound, gesture fronting is what we call that. So like, if you think about, say, uh, pl play along with me. If you go e u e u e u e u, your tongue goes to the front of your mouth for e, your tongue goes to the back of your mouth for u. E u e u e u. Yeah, no, it definitely does that. I could do it in my head and, and tell, yeah. yeah. And I think I did it the last time we talked, yes, so we'll, we'll use Caleb's version. <laughs> yep, so e u e u e u, Tongue is at the front of the mouth for E. Tongue is at the back of the mouth for U. If you're trying to pretend like your entire oral cavity is smaller, what's one thing you might do? Well, you might push your tongue forward and sort of keep it in a farther forward position so that you pretend like basically the back half of it doesn't, or a back part of it doesn't exist and it's a smaller oral cavity. But if you think about that e u e u, if you push your tongue too far forward trying to do an oo sound, it's gonna start sounding like an e. So you're gonna have to do something else to maintain the difference between that e and that oo sound. And one of those things might be like rounding your lips more so that you're like elongating it from this side because we already shortened it from the back or something like that. Um, so those were the kinds of things I was looking at, looking at like 
I've analyzed the, the audio. This is what people have done already in the past. There have been a few papers where people have taken um, data from, like, directly from shows to, like, analyze voice actors. Um, now let's look at the actual, what the tongue is actually doing to see if, okay, well, from our predictions about just looking at how it sounds, did the tongue actually do what we expected? And it doesn't always. Those were basically the, the big things that I was trying to look at and sometimes was left with more questions than answers, as science is wont to do. Were there any specific, like, definite conclusions that you drew from your research? Yeah. So for the actors that I was able to collect EGG data, the thing that looks at the larynx, both of those actors consistently showed uh, laryngeal raising, which means they were basically raising their entire larynx. So think of it as like uh, someone with an Adam's apple, their Adam's apple would look like it's in a higher position while they're talking. And that effectively could be shortening the entire vocal tract to make it sound smaller. There was also that gesture fronting, so moving the tongue farther forward in the mouth to make it sound like it's a smaller oral cavity. But that isn't always entirely consistent. It doesn't sound it doesn't happen for every sound or every vowel. So for example, uh for like my voice, um I also had uh Todd Habercorn and he he and I patterned together where if you looked at the acoustics, if you like graphed the sounds, it looks like we didn't do anything different with oo. The oo was in the same like acoustic space. But if you looked at the ultrasound, we were pushing our tongues farther forward. So why on earth did it not show up in the acoustics? Based on just looking at the acoustics, we would have assumed you didn't do anything different with your tongue. But that's not the case. Other um, sort of certainties, uh, at the most basic, yes, they sound different. Like, <laughs> that seems like a stupid question, but like when you're starting in a field of science that literally no one has actually acknowledged yet. That was a question. Yes. Are the voice actors sounding different? Some of the things that aren't answered or places where you could take the research. So there's always been this sort of assumption in speech sciences that your voice, your vocal profile, is largely uh, constrained by your anatomy. If you're, you know, a big man, you're gonna sound like a big man. If you're a small child, you're gonna sound like a small child. Um, but if anything, I think my research indicates that that might not be quite as hard and fast of a rule as we've previously thought. We've got adult men sounding like small children. We've got adult women sounding like male small children. We've got all of this stuff going on. And I think that that could have really huge implications for like trans individuals who are trying to match their vocal profile to their identity. So I think this could be a really interesting way to try and research safe ways to uh, train your voice to match a specific, you know, goal in mind. Because, I mean, who's better at doing voice things than voice actors? Voice things in a safe way, I should say. And that's one of the big things. Like, if you are trans transitioning female to male, right, like, you can testosterone really helps you out in trying to get the vocal profile that you're trying to get. But when you're going the other way, you don't really have that hormonal help. It's it's a lot more difficult to achieve, um, uh, to, to an extent at least. So I think this is a really interesting way that we could sort of research and look at those kinds of questions. Um, I think it would also be really interesting to take the simulated child voices and do a linguistic analysis, comparing it to real children and see, like, what are the differences between real child voices and these fake child voices, and what is about these fake child voices that we're all willing to believe that they're child voices when it's presented to us in cartoon format, even if it isn't the most faithful to to how a child sounds it always amazes me with the really good voice actors like that how they can do like those little kid voices but they can do so many different ones yes the really good voice actors who can go and just so do so so many different subtle variations on, on what on their craft 
Yeah, that was actually an interesting thing as well. Uh, I could, I used to only be able to do a, a female child voice. And literally, um, when I started analyzing Veronica's data, I listened to like, not even 10 seconds of her like male child voice. And I was like, oh, and then I could just do a male child voice. I, I literally don't even know what clicked. I was like, oh, it's just voice quality, which is like the breathiness or like the like graveliness of like a, a voice. And I just, I heard that for some reason and I was like, oh, I got it. And then I ended up getting uh, cast as a male child in a, in a podcast, which is very cute. It's called Cobbler's Gulch. Highly recommend if you've got kids. It's very fun. How big is this 40 mapping ultrasound? Because you said you positioned it under the chin here. Is it like a big... I'm getting a visual in my head. Is it like a big device or like just a little handheld thing you hold? So the probe is a little handheld thing you hold and it's got a long uh, cord. So that's the only part that you take into the sound booth with you. And then outside there is a large machine that's about as tall as me. I'm 5'4". It's quite big. So it's not very portable. It is not portable at all. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, it is on wheels. You could, like, change it to a different room. (laughs) But in terms of, like, you can't just, like, load it into the car. You gotta get, like, Philips is the the company that we bought this machine from. So you gotta get Philips to, like, come and safely transport it for you. I got two voice actors through Indie Comic Con. What I did was I contacted the guy who's in charge of uh, Twisted Tunes, if you're familiar. Um, and I was like, hey, we met at Salt Lake Comic Con. Like, can you make this work for me? And he did. So thank you, Jeff. But basically, I was like, I don't want to, you know, like cheat these voice actors out of giving me basically their skill. They're very, uh, their very technical skill for free. So I want to pay the actors, I want to pay them based on SAG-AFTRA minimum wage, at least. Um, so I was paying them 800 for four hours. And two of those hours were me picking them up in Indianapolis and driving them back to Bloomington, which is about an hour drive for the people who aren't around here. So I got to pick up and drive Veronica Taylor and Todd Haberkorn uh, to Bloomington, which was very entertaining. Veronica was just precious the whole time. She was so excited. She was like, oh, it's just so lovely here. Like, look at all this. Like, look at all these trees. Like, (laughs) Todd Haberkorn. (laughs) I collected his data right before the presentation where we met Ben. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was up at like four that morning to drive to Indy pick him up, drive back to Bloomington, do the experiment. So, like, I'm, like, hooking him up to this, like, ultrasound machine at, like, 7 in the morning. He flew in the day before, so he's on, like, West Coast. He's three hours behind. (laughs) Like, he slept in the car, which was... Awkward, but very understandable. And then I've I've got them in there. So the way the ultrasound works, you need to use ultrasound gel. It basically just makes it, makes the connection better. Like, right, like your chin isn't flat. So to sort of make sure that there aren't any spaces with air, you put the gel. Mm -hmm. And so I like got, uh, we have this like helmet that stabilizes the probe to your face, which like looks kind of like a medieval torture device, but it's not nearly as scary as it is. And so I've like got them all wired and then he like opened his mouth too far and it like squished all of the gel out the sides. And I was like, I can take all of this off again and reapply the gel or is it like weird if I just like stroke your beard with like more gel (laughs) and his response was just i've been to vegas i've seen weirder and i was like todd (laughs) (laughs) oh boy and i'm just picturing just between the mental state and the apparatus involved like he's going to look like he just got out of the cargo hold and he doesn't know what century it is what (laughs) galaxy he's in here we are oh my word (laughs) Uh, yeah, it was absolutely hilarious. That was how collecting data from Todd went. When it comes to Todd and when it comes to Veronica Taylor, what were some of the, I guess, dark L equivalents, some of those elements that stuck out as some of the choices? Because, again, we're talking about the pros here, so they're going to be making a lot of decisions as opposed to those of us who just kind of do the monkey see, monkey do, or it's like, oh, that sounds like this, and then try it until we get it. When you got the pros, they're going to be making 
deliberate decisions about this character sound like this and I'm going to be moving in this particular way. The coolest part about Veronica's data was like in terms of the acoustics, she absolutely first of all, she was the only one who was able to give me three vo- her regular voice uh simulated male child and a simulated female child. So she gave me three voices. Looking at just the acoustics, she hands down was the best at creating completely different acoustic profiles for compared the adult voice compared to the kid voices. All of the vowels were in different positions, all of like everything, the fundamental frequency, which you can think of as pitch. Um, so like speaking in a higher pitch versus lower pitch, that was totally different. But then when you looked at the ultrasound, there were not nearly as many differences as I was expecting. Granted, there was definitely error I mean, with with any measurement, there's error, right? Um, and she did not image the best, but she still imaged well enough that, like, you could see the tongue, you could see, what, you know, whatever we needed. But, um, like, I did not see uh, quite the degree of gesture fronting. I did not really see... Um, I looked at something else uh, called the hyoid bone, which is this uh, little bone at the base of your oral cavity, sort of, uh, like at the top of your neck, if you're kind of trying to find it. And it's where your tongue attaches, and it's basically this very mobile bone. And so I looked at, uh, in the ultrasound, when ultrasound hits bone, the signal actually just gets totally wiped out. It can't go through the bone. So by looking at the absence of information, I was able to see, oh, well, the hyoid bone moved because now the, the like, wedge of missing information is, like, way up here instead of, like, way down here. And so, like, her hyoid bone did not move nearly to the great degree that it did for, like, me and for Todd. And so, like, in terms of the articulation, like, clearly my methods were not sufficient to, like, contain Veronica Taylor. As of this year, after the conclusion of all of this research, you finally earned your PhD, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us a little bit about all the final steps for this year and what's coming next for you. Writing a dissertation in a global pandemic, uh, less than recommend. Uh... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, on the on the flip side, we could also look at it as the pandemic removed absolutely any form of exciting stimuli. So I had to do it. <laughs> I, there was nothing I could procrastinate writing with because nothing was fun. Um, <laughs> it's you, your art, and what creative energy you have to bring to bear. Yep. Exactly. I had like my intro chapter done in January and that was it. So I wrote the entire thing basically in March. Like I just, I was like, like anime montage, like get the glasses and they're like white and you're like, like wrote the whole thing basically in March. Um, and then started going back and forth with rounds of editing. Luckily going back a March prior, March of 2020, the man in charge of the lab, the speech production lab at Indiana University, he was like, this is not going to be good. We're not going to be able to collect data. If you need more data, you collect it this week, the week right before spring break, or you're not getting data. Um, so I was like, all right, we're doing it. So I collected two my two last subjects. I wanted more participants in my research, but uh, during a global pandemic, trying to do speech research is pretty unethical to ask someone to come and talk at you in a sound attenuated booth. I luckily managed to collect them. So basically 2020, I was analyzing all of that data. I was like, looking at the ultrasound, tracing it, like trying to get the supercomputer at IU to trace it for me. And then, uh, yeah, so January, I was like, all right, I'm done with the like analysis. I just need to write it. And so I wrote it and then, yeah, about June was when I contacted the whole committee and I was like, uh, all right, so my main advisor has like approved it. Everyone, can we set a date to defend my dissertation. And if you're unfamiliar with that, what that means, basically, I create a presentation explaining all the stuff that I did in my dissertation. And then I give the presentation. And then at the end, everyone on my committee asks me scary questions and uh, I have to answer them. And if I don't, then maybe I don't get a PhD. 
but I did. So we're, we passed. We're good. That's how that worked. But yeah, the defense itself, it was... I was most scared for the guy who's in charge of the ultrasound lab. Uh, not because he's a scary person. He's absolutely a delight. But he is the person who, like... He hadn't looked at it since, like, March when we were, like, tying up loose ends on the analysis and it wasn't really written yet. And I just really, really value his feedback. Like, he always thinks of things that I didn't think of. I think my advisor might have told him, because I told my advisor, I was like, I'm very nervous for him. Because, like, immediately when we all got on the Zoom, he, like, sent me a, a direct message and he was like, I was very pleased with the document you sent. And I was like, thank you for saying that. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh- <laughs> boost of confidence before we get into things yeah, exactly. I just our third episode was about spider-man and the spider-verse and my head is just going to that everybody knows the best way to learn is under intense life-threatening <laughs> pressure i feel like that was your phd defense in a nutshell Basically. oh my word it sounds terrifying yeah and then veronica taylor was on this for context usually like the committee of like four to five people and then like maybe your parents, and then, like, a couple other people from the department who were like, your topic looks interesting, I'll sit there and listen for two hours. Come. Like, it's usually not more than, like, 11 people max at a defense. I had 53 people on this Zoom call to watch my defense, uh, which was very flattering, very exciting, a little bit nerve-wracking, and Veronica Taylor was one of them. And at the- so basically, after I present- Um, Each of the committee members goes one at a time, taking turns, asking you their questions, and then at the end, they uh, usually, like, everyone will leave the room so they can deliberate, but it was on Zoom, so I put them in a breakout room and uh, talked to everybody else. And before they, like, went over to the uh, breakout room, Veronica Taylor, like, we opened it up to questions from everyone, and Veronica Taylor, like, unmutes, and she's like, I have something to say, and, like, I, I'm so glad I have it recorded so I can go back and, like, watch it when I'm, like, sad. <laughs> like, <laughs> but she was like, I just think this was so fascinating and, like, I feel like I understand my instrument better. And not to unduly sway anybody who's making decisions here, but I think you did an excellent job. <laughs> and it was just the Bravo. most precious thing I've ever seen. It was so much fun. Which is more than a lot of people could say for their dissertation defenses. Uh, I don't think fun is usually a word <laughs> used to describe them. Is there a place that we or our listeners could read your dissertation? Is it like online anywhere or? So I have to format it properly and then I can file it. And then once it's approved by the college, it will be uploaded to ProQuest. So it will be available online through that. Um, one thing that I would like to do, though, it's a very long and technical document. It's not super digestible to a non-linguist audience, despite the fact that I tried my hardest to make it, because one of the people on my committee was a voice actor, not a linguist, so I was like, I'm putting in, like, paragraphs here and there, like, explaining things in very much detail, and, like, other committee members were like, you don't need this in here, this is this is a dissertation, like, and I'm like, yes, but, like... <laughs> You're not the only one reading it. I would like to break it down and publish it as a couple shorter articles that are more suited to a, a layperson audience, a non-linguist audience. Colette, we will absolutely have to do this again. Thank you for so sure. much for your time. Thank you for talking to us and sharing with us. And we look forward to uh, sharing this conversation with our audience. We learned a lot and uh, hope to learn more in the future. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was really fun. Oh, it was an absolute joy. Thank you. That year flew by. I don't know if you feel the same way as I do on that. But yeah, we've been around for a year on Storytelling Breakdown. Yeah, when you texted me about that and said, hey, this is the one-year anniversary, I was like, no, it's not. That It hasn't been that long. Or it feels like that's too short because you, obviously with production and everything that we have been planning, even going back to the first season of this podcast, we've been working on this for something like two and a half years, but September of 2020 was when the first episodes of Storytelling Breakdown dropped. So here we are, one year later. It's been a crazy ride. So much fun. We are going to be doing 
two spotlights for this episode because this is the part of the show where someone from our team or our community shares more about something they really love. We've heard about so many cool things in the last year, but now that it's been a year since Ben and I have done our own spotlights, we have a pair of spotlights for you in this episode. And I'll be starting out with Downton Abbey. About a month ago, COVID kind of ran through my family and my mother and I ended up, you know, locked in the sunroom of our house away from everybody else. And we're like, well, what are we going to do for these 10 days that we're locked away by ourselves? Thankfully, Netflix now has Downton Abbey on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. It's was wildly popular when it aired. I had never gotten on that train, but basically it follows the life and times of the Crawley family at their landed estate, Downton Abbey, up in Yorkshire during the 1910s through the 1920s. But the interesting thing about it that I think makes it, you know, better than some of these other period piece dramas is you have the main noble family, the Lord and Lady Grantham, but you also have the servants downstairs, the cooks, the maids, the valets, the footmen, the head butler. And the show does this really cool mirroring of storylines between the upstairs and the downstairs. One thing I love that they do throughout the show is the way their schedule set up. The family has their dinner, their very fancy dinner first, and then the servants have it later. But the family is served by the footman and the butler during the story. So when they talk about political events, you know, World War One, the Titanic, etc., things that happened during this at the noble family's dinner upstairs, then when the servants have it downstairs, they repeat the same conversation. But you then get to two different viewpoints, the nobles, the upper crust of London society, and then, you know, the hardworking people. That's best showcased in my favorite character in the show, Branson. Spoilers, this is a warning, but Branson starts out as the family chauffeur, and he is an Irish nationalist, so he's very against the nobles, he's very against the whole, you know, English society. He ends up marrying one of the daughters of the noble family, and they go off to Ireland, have a kid, come back. She unfortunately passes away from the Spanish flu, so he kind of finds himself in flux, stuck with the main family, and has to learn, who am I now? Am I part of this noble family that I'm not used to and I used to hate all these ideas? Or am, am I still part of that working class, the servants downstairs, that I felt so keen with? What's another cool thing about the show is, unlike some other shows that take place, you know, over the course of a year or whatever, the show passes decades. You know, it starts before World War One, and then... At the time that I'm at currently in season five, it's like, you know, the mid 1920s. So you get to see these characters grow and progress and become totally different people. But it's very natural and it's just fun. It's fun to see them sit down for tea. Maggie Smith from Harry Potter plays the Countess Dowager, who is the elder matriarch grandma of the family. And she's an absolute treasure. Razor sharp tongue, razor sharp wit. Uh, she's a joy every time she's on screen. And you get to see all the food and the change into the times. They just brought in a radio in the latest episode, the wireless, and it was uh, the shock of it all. But if you like Pride and Prejudice, if you watched Bridgerton when that came out on Netflix, this is very much your cup of tea, and I would highly suggest that you take a sip. When we talk about things like film or video games, or TV shows on Storytelling Breakdown, you have a finite amount of time. You can make a big deal out of a film trilogy, but depending on the length of those movies, that's seven to nine hours, maybe. The experience of a video game, the amount of time it takes you to complete the game, plus side quests, that's going to be a certain amount of hours. A TV show is going to be a larger commitment, and probably span, as you were saying about Downton Abbey, a longer length of time. All of that might be beaten out by a D&D campaign. Specifically, my spotlight for this episode on Critical Role in one very specific episode. And Critical Role is amazing. I have only really started getting into it this year. There is so much content, so it's incredibly intimidating. But then you consider how long they have been going, that the fact that they have played two full campaigns that have spanned years... And you have these absurdly talented, as they put it, nerdy-ass voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons. 
And it is absolutely amazing. And the amount of time that they can take to build a story, to build a narrative. And again, it's really hard to figure out where to start. And what I discovered early on, because I still have not watched anywhere close to an extensive amount of campaign one or campaign two, I started with one shots. Let's do things that are a little bit more bite-sized and a little bit more approachable, especially during this year. One thing that I've been trying to do is teach myself to DM Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. And that's something even having experienced DMing in other systems that I was intimidated by, particularly D&D combat. There's a lot of layers. So I thought, well, you know what? Let's watch some Critical Role and see if that helps things here. There's an amazing episode where Matthew Mercer does a one-on-one D&D session with Stephen Colbert, who hadn't played D&D in decades. It's their uh, their one-shot for Red Nose Day fighting against child poverty. There's so many great layers to that that it warms your heart. It's great to see someone who hasn't played the game in forever coming back to it. And your DM is Matthew freaking Mercer, who is probably the best in the business. But what really helped me in figuring out, okay, how does this whole D&D thing work? How do you run combat? Was the one-shot sessions that were Battle Royale. Specifically, I want to talk about the Critical Role Battle Royale one-shot from June 21st, 2017. And when you think about the concept of what Critical Role is and how they do things, it makes all the sense in the world. Oh, we don't have everybody here, but we still want to play and do our Thursday night live stream. Let's just have a Battle Royale where all of the characters get dropped into a scenario where the goal is kill each other, may the best character win. (laughs) And so you have a lot of these layers of story that fall away. You can come in completely blind and experience a Battle Royale and just very quickly pick up on, oh, okay, so Travis is playing this this big guy. He's kind of large. I'm meeting Grog for the first time with very little context or learning uh, just all of the crazy abilities of all the different characters, like uh, Marisha Ray's Keyleth, who is a druid and is wild shaping and turning into all these crazy creatures during the combat. Uh, the way Talison plays Percy, who is just so stuck up and so confident and using firearms for crying out loud. There's so many things that are wonderful to experience if you haven't watched. I mean, probably you would enjoy them if you have experienced the campaigns. The one shot uh, is probably something maybe that's already on your radar. But if you haven't, the one shots are a wonderful place to start because they don't really spoil anything. You're coming in. You get to experience Sam Regal's craziness as Scanlan, the party's bard. And just seeing everyone's different strategies. I also would suggest this specific one shot because, again, you learn so much about the mechanics of the game. You get to see it in action. You're watching the combat play out. It's incredibly entertaining. Everyone at the table is brilliant at voice acting and also very good at playing their characters and playing the game from a technical perspective. And this one in particular, I think there's another one that they did at level 20 where Liam O'Brien is at the table instead of Laura Bailey. But I did like the one with Laura. Uh, for Her character Vex is amazing. And she also has a little bit more back and forth with Matt about the rules. So it's great to kind of hear, oh, that's a question I had or, or a clarification that would be helpful to me. And Laura is bringing it up. That was wonderful. And you also <laughs> don't have Liam's character Vax in the battle royale because he's a rogue. And let's face it, he spends half of that particular battle in stealth mode just texting Matt what his movements are. So you get full movement, full experience from all five players in the battle. And of course, as you consume it, I wound up probably watching it over the course of like several days as I'm playing it when I have free time, pausing it and coming back to it on YouTube. But again, it's the Critical Role Battle Royale one shot from June 21st, 2017. If you see that's the date, you've got the right video. It's incredibly entertaining. And of course, I'm not going to spoil who wins. You'll have to see that for yourself. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you, John, for recording this episode in your studio space. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>